Okay, let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. If you're unfamiliar with your Bibles, it's almost right smack dab in the middle. It's after Psalms, after Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then Isaiah. One of the first big major prophets. So Isaiah chapter 55. That's where we'll spend all of our time this morning. All right, let's read this together. Isaiah 55, the whole chapter. We're going to read it together, so stick with me here. This is 1 through 13. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful invitation of grace. God, I pray that you would empower your spirit within us to, to do amazing things through this passage, to receive this grace with open hearts and in a way that would cause us to abandon this world, abandon anything that tangles us up in this world and to cling to you. Help us to see grace for what it is this morning, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys know the song Amazing Grace? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Beautiful song, right? It's probably, probably one of the most recognizable songs in church history, especially in our generation. It's even recognized by non-believers. They may only hear it at funerals, but they know the song and they appreciate it. But as Christians, we appreciate it even more because there's an important message behind it, right? God's grace is amazing. But I want to ask you this morning, do you really believe God's grace is amazing? 
truly amazing because we live in a world that calls all kinds of things amazing. I mean, you might see amazing dunks or amazing cars or you go to a restaurant and you're like, that food was amazing, right? But is God's grace amazing like everything else in this world or is it in a whole different category? You know, for honest, I, I think that for most of us, God's grace really isn't that amazing, at least astonishing and unbelievable like it should be. Because I don't know about you, but I've never had a conversation, and I've rarely heard of conversations like this, where we would say or other people would come up and say, you know what, I, I believe the Bible, I, I like most of the stuff in there, but you know what gets me? Grace. I just, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's too outrageous, too unbelievable. There's nobody in this world that acts like that. There's nobody that's that kind of their enemies, especially not a holy God. Or how many people have said, you know what, there's only one reason I'm not a Christian. It's because of grace. That's it. Grace is just too hard to swallow for me. But why is that happening? Why, why don't we see grace as amazing as it is? Well, I think it's because we have a high view of self. We, we think that we're kind of deserving of it. Yeah, grace is undeserved favor, but at least I deserve it more than that guy. Right? And we also have a low view of God. We think that God's holy and he hates sin, but my sin's not as bad as other sins. So, yeah, God kind of should give me grace. I'm not that bad. But if we recognize our sinful and depraved condition, and if we recognize the holiness of God, grace is not just amazing. It's astonishing. There's nothing that even comes close to grace in this world. And that's what this passage teaches. In fact, the most commonly quoted verses in this passage are all about that, all about this amazing grace. Look at verses 8 and 9. I'm sure you guys have heard this the most out of almost everything in this passage. Verse 8 and 9 say this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now think for a minute, what is the time that people quote that passage the most? Under what circumstances, what conditions do you hear people say, well, you know, God's, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. It's suffering, right? It's suffering. The problem of evil in the world, that's when we want to say, when people comes up to and says, why would God let bad things happen to me? Why would I have cancer? Why would I, I lose a child? We want to say, well, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And that's true. And we need to know that God has a perfect plan even when we don't see and understand it. But that's not the important part of this passage. That's not the main thrust of this passage. That's not to explain the problem of evil in the world. It's to explain the problem of grace in the world. That grace is so mind-blowing, so astonishing, that all Isaiah can do in this massive invitation of grace is say, well, you know what? I know it doesn't make sense to us, but that's God. That's who he is. He's that gracious. Even though there's nothing to compare it to in this world, God's grace is astonishing. It's amazing. And that's what we need to see this morning because we're used to saying amazing grace without really thinking about it. We need to see God's grace as astonishing. Put grace on display. And that's what this passage does this morning. And when we see that, we need to repent and worship God. That's what I want you guys to do more than anything else today, is to see grace for what it is and then turn and repent and worship God. When we see God's grace in all of his glory, the last thing we do is think, interesting. 
Or, that's a great little idea. I'm going to write that down in my notebook and save that for later. No, we see God's grace and we're undone. We're broken. We're amazed that a sinful person can come into the presence of God. That's amazing grace. And that's what this passage talks about. As we go through this passage, I want to draw your attention to four areas. Four areas. The first two are just responses to this amazing grace. And the last two are the explanations, the, the explaining what the grace is all about. And I made them all ours so it's easy to remember. All right, so the four areas I want to draw your attention to are receive grace. That's what we're commanded to do, receive grace. And then repent from sin. And then Isaiah gives us the reasoning behind grace and then the results for grace. So receive grace, repent from sin, the reasoning behind grace, and the results of grace. Now, we've been in Luke up to this point, so I need to give you some information about Isaiah. Isaiah is a wonderful book about a faithful God and unfaithful people. About God's children who rebel against a good and gracious God. About how God continually helps them and provides for them, and they continue to turn away from Him. Turn to idols and turn and and work in their own strength to accomplish what they want to do. And it's a sad story because you see those rebellious children turn away from this loving God. And you see it happen in amazing ways. I mean, just a few chapters before Isaiah 55, God miraculously delivers the Israelites from Assyria. Israel has reached their sin capacity and God says, you know what? I'm going to raise up a pagan nation to discipline my own children. And Assyria comes through and they wipe out Israel, they wipe out Samaria, and all that's left is Judah and Jerusalem. And they're sitting on the doorstep and overnight God wipes out 185,000 men in their sleep. Just kills them all. And they wake up and they run home because they're scared. And you would think that Israel would rejoice in their God, but they get prideful. They turn and think, we defeated the Assyrians. And because of that, in Isaiah 39, Isaiah prophesies that, you know what, Israel, you have continued to rebel. You're going to be kicked out of the promised land. You're going to be in exile because of from Babylon. And you know what? You're going to be cast out from God's presence. And then Israel is responding, well, what about God's promises? What about he was supposed to be good to us? We're we're his children. We're the servants of God. What about that? And then Isaiah reveals that Israel was never the true servant of God. They were never the true child of God. That was Jesus. Israel wasn't plan A and then Jesus was plan B. Jesus wasn't the audible that God called at the last second to fix the problem of Israel. It's always been Jesus, the suffering servant. And Isaiah 53 explains how the true servant would come. Isaiah 53.5 says this, He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So Isaiah says the suffering servant will come. God is still faithful to his promises. And even rebellious Israel and rebellious us, children of God, can trust in Jesus and find freedom from their sin, freedom from their idolatry. And then in Isaiah 55, after showing this amazing grace through prophesying Jesus coming to the cross, he says what to do with that grace. This is what Isaiah 55 is about. How do we respond to this amazing grace? And that's what happens in verse 1 of Isaiah 55. It's receive grace. That's our response, to receive grace. But who's he talking to? 
Who's supposed to receive it? Well, let's look in verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is a picture of a broken, hungry, thirsty man, desperate for food, desperate for life. It's like a beggar, just desperate for any hope. This is a picture of a broken, sinful person in this world who just has lost hope. All their dreams have dried up. Every person has let them down. All they look and see around is is sin and devastation, and there is no hope out there for them. They want to take the advice of Job's wife. Just curse God and die. That's all they want to do. And they can't even imagine how bad it could get because it seems like it's, it's horrible already. And here's the biggest difference. They realize they have no ability, they have no money, they have no means to fix their problems. Their deepest need. And their deepest need is not no money. Their deepest need is a restored, reestablished relationship with Christ, with our Father that's been severed by sin. That's the deepest need. Oh, are you broken this morning? Are you thirsty for hope? Desperate for any kind of truth that would give you hope in this world? Desperate for a solution to your problem? And do you realize you can't fix yourself? And God has a message for you. Now, I feel like some people are here like that, but I feel like most of us probably fall in the second category, which is what it explains in verse 2. This is the self-sufficient one. Read verse 2 with me. Why do you spend money? So this one has money. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. So this one has money. They have capital. They have the ability. And they have the hunger and the thirst of the last person. But this person has the the hope that, that they could fix their own problems. That they could chase after this world and find satisfaction in this world and meet their own needs apart from God. Guys, this is the perfect description of the American dream. It's never enough. I just need to keep getting more stuff, chase after anything that will give me satisfaction. Right? And at the end of the day, all we are is frustrated and disappointed because every new thing leaves us wanting. Whether it be a, a new job or a new city, or a new boat, or a new car, or a new house, new computer, new book, new season tickets, new vacation, maybe even a new wife or a husband, the new diet plan, the new looks, the new hobby, the new school, maybe a new parenting technique, or a new counselor, or a new spiritual growth technique, or the new Bible study. At the end of the day, we're still dissatisfied. Everything leaves us empty, Even the things that seem like they should fill us, like Bible studies. We go from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience thinking that in that we'll find joy. And as soon as sin comes, we're devastated because our hope is in the study. Our hope is in that new fix, that new satisfaction. That's what this passage is describing. It's this image of this person who is just stuffing their face with junk food, stuff that won't won't satisfy, like Cheetos, right? no nutritional value for Cheetos at all. Or, or cotton candy. I had some cotton candy with, with my kids this week, and, and it's just amazing food because it looks great. You put it in your mouth, it just disintegrates. You don't even have to swallow most of the time, right? It's, and what a perfect 
picture of what the world offers. It looks great, it tastes good, but as soon as you get a taste of it, it's gone. You can't even enjoy it. It's just gone. And that's what this is talking about. You're just wasting your money, wasting your labor on things that won't satisfy. I know it sounds ridiculous, guys, but this is who we are. We go around filling our lives with spiritual Cheetos, with empty things that will never satisfy us like only God can because we're made to be satisfied in God. Just like Augustine said, Thou hast made us for Thyself. We were made for God. And our hearts are restless until they find our rest in Thee. We're made only to be satisfied in God. So which one are you this morning? Are you the thirsty, broken, hungry man who realizes you can't meet your own needs? You're spiritually and physically bankrupt in need of any hope that will offer you satisfaction. Are you the person that is spiritually broken, thirsty, hungry, but you're trying to cover up with this world? You're chasing this world, trying to be satisfied in this world, and it's just leaving you empty. We're all one of them. And God has a message for both of these types of people. And that's this message message starting again in verse 1. This is the astonishing grace that God offers hungry, broken people. Let's read verse 1 one more time. What is this grace? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This is this description of the grace of God. It's refreshing. It gives life. If you're starving in the desert and you finally find civilization, the last thing you want is a steak dinner. What you need and what you want is water, refreshment, right? It gives life when you don't have any. I think we get this a little bit in Bakersfield. Right, where it's 110 degrees in the summers. I mean, if you look on Google Maps, half of Bakersfield has pools, right? We, we know that at the end of the day, when you're outside working or if you're kids and you're outside playing all day, nothing feels better than a nice, refreshing jump in a pool or a nice, cold glass of water. You can have your Starbucks, your Gatorade. Give me water, right? Give me the water that refreshes when you're tired and thirsty, Well, imagine Israel who lived in a desert climate and realized that the water didn't come from the water company. They didn't just go and turn on the faucet and drink it. If God didn't make it rain, they didn't have water. They had to go out and get it. And God says, I will offer you refreshing water. You're thirsty? Come to me. I'll give you water. That's not it. Look at the next part of verse 1. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. Now, wine is this idea of joy, this idea of celebration. When you want to survive, you want the water. When you want to party, you bring out the wine. Not in the sense that you want to abuse it and get drunk and all those things that can can happen, but when people celebrated, when there was a wedding in this time, when you wanted to bring a delightful atmosphere to people, you brought out the wine. And God says, my grace can give you a joy and a celebration and a satisfaction too. Not just a refreshment in life. And he also says, it's like milk. It doesn't just give you a fix now and then leave you wanting later. It gives you long-term nourishment and refreshment. When you want life, you want water. When you want to celebrate, you want wine. But when a baby needs to grow and develop, you give the milk, Right? God's gospel, God's grace is like that. It provides all of our needs. All of our needs. 
And what are we supposed to do with it? Look at verse 2. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to, diligently to me, he says. Eat what is good. Don't waste your time on the world. Eat what is good. Eat what I offer. Delight yourselves in rich food. Be satisfied with the food that I offer. This is not just saying that I have a little bit of food for you to be satisfied. This is saying, come to my feast. Enjoy the rich food that I freely offer those who are hungry and broken and thirsty. God is saying, I will provide all of your needs and you will be satisfied. Just like Jesus tells the woman at the well in Samaria. In John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I give life. I give water that's refreshing. Look at verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me, he says. Come to God. God is the refreshment. God is the gospel. God is the solution to our deepest problems. You know, we have this idea that God's blessing can be given or received apart from God himself. Like God's just the salesman that just dispenses grace. But no, God is gracious. To know grace is to know God and to run to Him. Even as sinners, even as broken and rebellious children, we run to God. He is the living water. He's the refreshment. He's the one that gives us joy and satisfaction. And He's the one that meets our long-term needs. Grace is not something that God just dispenses. He is gracious. And this is where we find out that God is not just inviting us to receive grace. He is himself inviting. He's appealing. He's alluring. And he makes us want to say, just like the psalmist says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is my strength. God is my desire. He's not a hobby I tack on on the weekends. He's not somebody I run to just when I'm in need. He is my life. He is my portion. He is everything to me. That's exactly what we need to see God as. Imagine Israel hearing that they would be expelled from the promised land. Still hearing that God offers grace that refreshes that meets all their needs. The same God of Abraham, of Moses, the God of their fathers is still faithful to his promise. And he will meet their needs even in exile. Well, what else does that look like? Look at verse 3 again. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. What's he talking about there? This is David the king. This is the one whom God loved and who loved God. And God is saying, I will make with you a covenant that will last forever. A promise to love you forever. To love you just like I love David. 
Whom it says in Psalm 89 that this, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. This is David and Jesus. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations, including ours. The kingdom of God is building because God is faithful to love David and love us like he loves David. So that we can say, like David says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. We get to say that because of the grace of God and the love that God has for David. He loves us like that. But that's not the only one that Jesus is talking about here. Or that, that Isaiah is talking about. He's also speaking of Jesus. Look at verse 4 again. My steadfast, sure love for David in verse 3. And then verse 4. Behold, I made him, this is Jesus, a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that did not know you, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord Yahweh, your God, and the Holy One of Israel. You realize what Isaiah is saying here? God doesn't just love you like Jesus, or like David. He loves you like Jesus. He loves you the same way He loves His Son. Even like it says in Romans 8 where it says, we are heirs with Christ. Heirs of all things. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with some really cool stuff. No, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God doesn't hold back. He elaborately gives us His grace. He displays it beautifully before us, and He gives us everything. He doesn't hold back His character, His love from us. He gives us all of it. Do you realize that God can love you like He loves Jesus? The One whom He said, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And God loves us so much that He doesn't just deal with our sin for the time being and then just say, you take it from here. Look at the end of verse 5. Actually, let's read from the beginning of verse 5. Behold, you should call a nation that did not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. And listen to this. Why do nations run to you? Why do people want to come and praise God together with you? For He has glorified you. You, sinner, rebel. God loves you so much, He doesn't just leave you in your sin. He promises that you'll make it home one day looking just like Jesus. Glorified, wanting what God wants. Loving God with the whole heart. Or do you long for that day? It's as good as one. It's going to happen. And that's the reason people want to worship God. Because of the evidence of grace in our lives. Because of what God is trying to do through broken, sinful people. Oh, what astonishing grace. Shocking grace. This is... God promises to satisfy us and refresh us. To give us a joy and a peace that doesn't even make sense. To meet our long-term needs and our deepest needs in Him. 
He promises the eternal love for David and the same love he has for Jesus. He promises faithful love and care that will last all the way until we're made like his son and completely free from the bondage of sin. It's amazing love. Amazing grace. And what are we supposed to do? It's got to be catch, right? How do we get this love? I want to be loved like Jesus. I want to have this satisfying grace. How does it come to me? All we do is open up our hands and receive it by faith. That's it. This passage is filled with commands. It tells us to receive this wonderful grace by faith. You know, we often believe this lie about God that he's a miser. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. He doesn't care about your needs. He doesn't want to help you out. He just wants to accomplish his own goals. It's the first lie we were ever told in the garden, and we've been believing it ever since. See that tree over there? You see that? God's holding back on you. You have to go get it for yourself. You have to go provide for yourself. You don't need to trust God. Go get it for yourself. Make it happen. God's not a miser. God doesn't hold back. God is a God with unlimited resources, and he loves to meet the needs of his children. Did you know there are 12 commands in these three verses, the first three verses? 12 commands. And we hate commands, don't we? Like, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. But these are all commands to receive grace, to feast on goodness and grace from God's table. In fact, these 12 commands can all be summed up with five commands. Come to God. Buy what He offers. Even though you don't have money, come buy it. And don't just look at it. Don't just think about it. Eat it. Enjoy it. And listen to God. Don't listen to the world. Don't listen to the world that says you can find satisfaction out there. Listen to God. Trust in Him. Receive this grace by faith. Does that describe you? Have you received God's abundant grace, this kindness to you, even though you don't deserve it? Have you enjoyed this grace? Have you listened to God? Oh, this world wants us to listen to everybody else but God. Who are you listening to? Who's your primary voice of truth all the time? Is it CNN? Fox News? Oprah, your friends on Facebook, is that your, fri- your primary voice of truth? Maybe it's Hollywood. Maybe it's listening to Hollywood saying, you know what, I just need to get the most out of life. Just do it. Just go for it. Accomplish your dreams on your own. I have a lot of kids here. Are you listening to Disney? <laughs> Sounds weird to say that. I spent four days with my family in Disneyland this week, and I love Absolutely love Disneyland. Great, fun place to bring kids, and it's fun for adults. And, and there's one thing you need to do there. If you go to Disneyland, and when the fireworks show start, just do one thing. Just plug your ears, okay? The music is all about just believe, have faith, just trust. And it never tells you what to trust in. It's just believe in belief. Just hope and hope. Is that what we do? Do we have this general optimism that I know things stink, but it's just going to turn out all right because I think it will? No, God is saying, listen to me. Trust me. Have your hope planted in me. I'm the source of grace. Trust, listen, receive the grace that I offer. 
That's what God's calling us to. And he offers it freely. But this grace wasn't free. It came with the cost, didn't it? Look back one more time at verse 1 with me. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. How does one with no money buy something? Well, it doesn't happen unless somebody gives them the money or somebody pays for it, right? Guys, this is a description of what has to happen. We had no means of meeting our own needs. We can't fix our sinful condition. But Jesus came, the suffering servant came and met all of our needs in Christ. He's the one that suffered and died. As it says in Isaiah 53, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There was a high cost for this grace. But it was paid in full on the cross. We can be fed and satisfied because the source of living water was thirsty. We can have life because Jesus died. He took our place. He paid the cost that we could not pay. This is the gospel. This is God requiring holiness and providing holiness. Don't believe the lie that you don't have to be perfect to get into heaven. You do have to be perfect. But the glorious truth of the gospel is that that perfection doesn't come from us. It comes from Christ and His perfect life, which is transferred to us, which is imputed to us because of His death and resurrection, by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we sinners might become the righteousness of God. That's why Jesus is able to say, it is finished. Paid in full. Not it's started. Not it's begun. You take it from here. It is finished. Not just the grace enough to deal with your past and you take it from here. No, I am going to provide enough grace to meet every single one of your needs. And when you sin, when you fall, turn to me and confess your sins. Like it says in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know if you've ever thought about that verse. It's always been such a funny verse to me. We're encouraged to confess our sins and it says because God is faithful and just. I don't know about you, but the last thing I want when I'm confessing sins is justice. Right? I want a God that's gracious and merciful. That's what I want. But do you realize what's that that saying? Because of the work done in Christ, God is faithful to forgive. Not only that, it would be unjust to hold those sins against you. Because of what Jesus did on the cross and what Jesus accomplished by living the perfect life for us. You know, there's a lot of talk today in the church about God's love being unconditional. You guys heard that? God's, God's love is unconditional. And I, and I get the need to want to say that. I want to see that God's love is faithful even when we're unfaithful. But I think that's an unhelpful saying. Because if we're honest, there were conditions that had to be met for sinful people to go into the presence of God. 
But the wonderful truth of the gospel is we didn't meet the conditions. Jesus did. Listen to David Powelson. God does not accept me as I am. He loves me despite how I am. He loves me just as Jesus is. This love is much, much, much better than unconditional. He has blessed me because His Son faithfully fulfilled the conditions. Contrary to my due, He loves me. Now I can begin to change not to earn love, but because of love. You need something better than unconditional love. You need the crown of thorns. You need the touch of life to the dead son of the widow of Nain. You need the promise of the repentant thief. You need to know I will never leave you or forsake you. You need forgiveness. You need a vine dresser. You need a shepherd, a father, a savior. You need to become like the one who loves you. You need the better love of Jesus. It's not just unconditional. It's a love that meets all the conditions for us so that we don't have to. All we have to do is open our hands and receive. That's what this passage is calling us to. That's the first response to this grace. What's the second? Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. This is this invitation to seek. But there's an urgency now. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Oh, if you feel God convicting you of sin today, don't let it go. We have a bad habit of putting off important things for unimportant things. Don't let that conviction slide. Repent. Turn to God. That's what this is saying. Guys, look, in a hundred years, none of us are going to be here. Every single person in this room will be in infinite enjoyment of God or infinite torment. Don't put this off. Receive this grace. Repent from sin. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked, that's you and me, forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. We look at that and think, oh wow, it would be hard to to turn from my wicked ways, but the unrighteous man turn from their thoughts? Abandon every thought that's contrary to God? That's what it takes to worship this God? Yes. Be changed by this grace. Repent and turn from Him. Turn from the idols in this world. We have this idea that idols are just these really bad things, like adultery or murder or these really horrible things that the world hates. When most of the time for us, idols are just good things that God gives us that we twist. Like Mark Driscoll says, it's, it's a good thing that became a God thing, which is a bad thing. We twist God's gifts and we decide to worship the gifts rather than the giver. And what Isaiah is saying here, if you come to receive grace, come empty-handed. Don't cling to this world. Don't bring your religious efforts to pay me back. Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. Paid in full. Don't bring your pride that assumes that you can partner with me to finish this salvation. No, Jesus says you can do nothing apart from me. 
Don't bring what you've accomplished in this world, what you've gained in this world, whether it be money or success or a job or a home or even good, wonderful things like family and friends. Don't bring any of those things. You are betrothed to one husband and shall have no other gods before me. That's what God is saying. And everyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Let go of this world. Don't bring your agenda. Don't bring your own intentions with the gospel. Don't think, God, I'll receive your grace as long as you make me safe. As long as you keep me well. No, come empty-handed, knowing that God knows your needs better than you do. And He is a good, loving Father that delights to meet His children's needs. And don't bring a half-heart to God. Don't reach out for His grace with one hand and cling to the world with the other. Worship the God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's exactly what that song, Rock of Ages, says. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. If you want to receive grace, come empty-handed. Come empty-handed. And now some of you are probably thinking, well, there's the catch. So you're saying I have to drop this world and do all those things and then I can receive grace. Yes. But here's the wonderful part about the gospel. God doesn't just give us grace. He helps us receive it. He helps us repent. This is how the gospel not only speaks to our salvation, but to our sanctification. God loves us too much to leave us in our sins. He didn't come to save the sins. He came to save the sinner. And He promises grace enough to help you be delivered from that sin. To help you repent. And if you think, I can't repent. I want grace, but I can't live that perfect holy life you talk about. Well, God's grace is sufficient for your needs. And He will meet all of your needs as you trust Him. Like it says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Why? For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God helps you repent. God helps you receive the grace. He helps you to come empty-handed. And we need to pray like the man in Mark who says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. At the end of time, when we receive the crown for all the good works done in the faith, like it says in Revelation 4, we will take our crown and throw it at the feet of Jesus. And this final recognition that it's all grace. From start to finish, He did it all. We came broken and thirsty, trying to trust in Him by faith and repent from our sins, and He met all of our needs along the way. That's exactly what He's saying. What amazing grace. So amazing that it just doesn't even make sense. Right? We're not like this. And that's what Isaiah is trying to say here. He just stops this big invitation and says, you know what? I don't think this is being very clear, so let me describe it to you. Let me give you the reasoning behind grace. Look at verses 8 and 9, the ones we read earlier. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I know this doesn't make sense to sinful, fallen people. 
There's no example of this in your, in your world. And you have to think that in order for me to be gracious, I have to turn off my wrath valve. I have to turn off my justice valve so I can turn on my grace valve. But that's not who I am. I know this seems outrageous and and unbelievable, but this is who I am. I'm a God that's gracious in justice. I'm a God that's merciful even in my wrath. If you don't believe me, look to the most unbelievable act in all of history. Look to the cross where all of my character finally reaches its fulfillment in Christ, where the wrath and the judgment and the justice of God meet grace and mercy and salvation. That's the most unexplainable act in history. It doesn't make sense for God to love us like that. But that's who God is. And He shows grace to the broken. Look at verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return to me, or do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's saying, I know there's this gap between you and I because of sin. I know you can't reach me. I know you can't fix yourself. But my word can span that gap. And not only my word in Scripture, my true and living word, like it says in John 1, who became flesh, the word of God that came down from heaven and dwelt among us. Like it says in John 6, Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For I have come down from heaven just like this rain and snow, not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. For this is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes, receives this grace, in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Grace freely offered in Jesus. And what's the result? Read the last two verses with me. Verse 12. This is the results of this amazing grace. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. I know you're broken. I know you're hungry for hope. I will give you hope. I will give you a joy that this world doesn't offer. I will give you peace and rest and shalom. I will meet your needs in the end. Look at the next part of the verse. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and the, all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. This is not literally what happens. This is a, a picture of restored creation worshiping God. That all creation was groaning under the effects of sin, was destroyed, and it reflected the image of God, but only partially. But in restored creation, when we're restored and all creation's restored, everything will be praising God. And look at verse 13. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Oh, when you hear thorn, think the fall. Because of our sin, this world produced thorns and thistles. Made work hard and this life almost unbearable. But God says, I'm redeeming this world. Because of the crown of thorns on Jesus' head, 
I will raise up the cypress, beautiful strong tree, and the myrtle in its place instead of the briar. I am restoring this creation. And all creation will worship me. Look at the last part of the verse. And it, all creation, shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The end of all things is worship. Worship God. All creation, us included, will worship God in the end because of His amazing grace. And we will be a monument uh, displaying the name of the Lord, displaying the the graciousness of our God, just like the the hole in Jesus' side and the hole in His hands. We will be a tribute to God's grace for all eternity, praising God at the throne because of His amazing grace. That's the end of all things. God will restore it all through His grace. Are you going to be a part of it? Are you going to be rejoicing at the throne of God? I don't know what you need to do to respond to grace this morning, where you are specifically. Maybe you're the person that just needs to receive the grace, to trust in Him, to find hope in Him, and stop chasing after this world. Or maybe it is to repent, to let go of the things in this world. And turn to our Father who meets all of our needs and satisfies all of our needs and our greatest need in Christ. Or maybe you just need to respond in worship because you've trusted Him in faith and you're recognizing this is amazing grace that we don't deserve. And that's what we're going to do together now. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this unbelievable display of grace. Lord, we know we are sinners. We know we don't deserve any goodness from you. But we see in your word that we are offered freely this goodness because of Christ. We are given this wonderful gift of love and grace, even the faithful love for David for all of eternity because of Christ. God, give us the faith. Give us the ability to repent. And we want to turn to you in faith now and enjoy you to not just think about these things, but to cherish them, to fall on our face, show our need for you, and repent and turn to you. God, help us to do that as we continue to worship. In your name we pray. Amen.